This is episode number 60, how to sleep better, overcome jet lag, and the latest in sleep research with Dr. Amy Bender. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, inspiring stories, and health-related research so that you can have the tools to be better every day. We absolutely recommend that for our athletes and even just professionals looking to be more productive. Napping has shown to boost your alertness, boost your mood, you know, improve your productivity. So uh, napping is a huge strategy and I think a lot of athletes don't take advantage of it. I'm Sonia and thanks for listening to my show. I'm so happy that you're here. I'm really thankful whenever you share the show with your friends and I love interacting on social media, seeing whenever you guys screenshot and tag me and the guests in the episodes. It's pretty neat to see how audio has taken off. I've always been a big fan of audio and it's probably because I have a hard time sitting still to watch videos, but podcasts are a big part of my life and that is why I wanted to have my own show. And it's been pretty cool to have been doing this for over a year. And then really neat thing about it is that I've personally learned so much and it's really fun to share with you guys all these different topics. And sleep is one of the topics that I've really wanted to find an expert to talk to. So when I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Amy Bender, I was stoked. Dr. Bender is pretty rad. She's done a lot of work and research with athletes with sleep and performance. And it's pretty interesting to get into some of her research later in this episode, but she's worked with Canadian national team athletes, and she's an expert in this field. She received her PhD and Master of Science degrees in experimental psychology from Washington State University, specializing in sleep EEG. Her current research focuses on the relationship of sleep and recovery on athletic performance. I know that's something that we think about often as athletes. How much sleep am I needing to get? How is this affecting my recovery? Should I be napping? There's all these great questions that we got to cover in the show. Dr. Bender has developed sleep intervention protocols for numerous Canadian national teams. And you'd be surprised to find out that there's a lot of athletes that have sleeping disorders. Her research interests stem from being an athlete herself. She is a Hall of Fame basketball player, has summited a handful of volcanoes, completed an Ironman back in 2009, and currently runs around chasing her three children who are all five and under. And those of you who are parents and who have little kids, you also know that sleep can be a very precious commodity whenever you have kids. This next hour is going to be completely jam-packed for you guys we talked about a lot. We talked about circadian rhythms and sleep cycles to start, how much sleep we actually need and whether you can bank sleep and whether napping is actually effective. We talk about her research with athletes and athletes' sleep needs. We also talk about sleep hygiene and blue light. We talk about kids and how you can manage sleep better when you have kids and something near and dear to me is talking about disturbed sleep cycles when you're traveling. So how to overcome jet lag, how can caffeine and alcohol affect your sleep, and how can you use maybe some of those to help you get on a sleep schedule? We also talk about melatonin, and there's just a lot of really great information in this episode that I think you'll be able to use immediately. And there is this one tip that she gave on how to fall asleep if you're having trouble falling asleep, and I won't ruin it. I'll make you listen to the episode, but that has been a helpful thing for me because sometimes I wake up at well when the sun comes up and I want to go back to sleep, so that's been effective. Before we get into it, I just wanted to thank everyone who is on the Plant Power Tribe Facebook page and also on the new Instagram account. The Facebook page is free. Anyone can join it. You don't even have to eat a plant-based diet. It's just about healthy eating and healthy habits. And it's pretty cool. We have over a thousand members in there. And the Facebook page is more of a community page. So everybody is posting. It's not just me posting all the time. Actually, it's usually other people that are doing the majority of the posting. So that's been really cool to see. And whenever we're trying to develop healthy habits in our life, whether it be with diet, with exercise, with sleep, it's helpful to surround ourselves and and look at information and posts and media that supports our vision. So I've been really happy with the Facebook group. 
I also started an Instagram called at plant power tribe. And that one is just pictures and tips about my personal food journey. I didn't want to dominate the Facebook page just with myself. So I have this Instagram page that is more what I'm eating on a day-to-day basis and why I'm eating those foods. I also wanted to let you guys know that there are some new Moxie and Grit socks available on the Moxie and Grit website. That's my sock brand. It is moxieandgrit.com, M-O-X-Y and grit.com. It's been really cool to start that brand. I started it back in March and man, like I saw pictures of people from BC Bike Race rocking the socks and people posting about it. And it's really just fun to see that kind of community grow and to see people enjoying the socks. So the new socks say Moxie and Grit. So Moxie on one leg and Grit on the other. And there are two different colors, two different designs. And I think that they're really fun because I think the reason I chose the name Moxie and Grit is because I think that that's what you need in anything. You need to have fun. You need, you need to have energy, but you also have to have grit to get through something. So any good ride, any good goal, anything in your life requires both. And I think that those two things for me have been fundamental and paramount for achieving things that I've achieved in my life. So that is why I made those socks and why I named my brand Moxie and Grit. And last, I just wanted to say thank you and give a shout out to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding site, so it's a a little monthly contribution. And even as little as $4 a month, which is the cost of one coffee per month, makes a big difference to the growth and the sustainability of this show. So I just wanted to thank you, all of you who are on there, and I just really, really appreciate it. If you want to find it, it's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Sonia Looney show. And it's also in the show notes. So take a look there. But let's get into the show with Dr. Bender. I know that you guys are going to really enjoy this. And again, make sure you take a screenshot and share the show because I think that this episode is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. And I want as many people as possible to have access to Dr. Bender's awesome insights. Yeah, so I, I was really excited to hear that you are in Calgary and that we could chat. Yes, I love it here. I love it. I love being near the Rocky Mountains. Nice to be here. My We ski a lot too, so it's nice to have COP or wind sport right, right close to us. Yeah, and I was doing a little bit of research on you and you're in the, you're in the Basketball Hall of Fame in Spokane? Yes, I started off in community college level, uh, so I played for Spokane Falls Community College, and then I transferred to Cal State San Bernardino uh, Division II basketball, and I ended up getting into the uh, Spokane Falls Hall of Fame. That's super cool. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, my husband played basketball for Simon Fraser in university as well, so... I don't know a ton about basketball, but I learned a lot from him. And then I also coach Reggie Miller, which is a, a random. Oh, um, crazy. Little thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And he loves mountain biking. So it's pretty fun. Oh, awesome. All right. Well, we should get, probably start talking about sleep. There's a lot of other things I, I'd love to chat with you about. But I think that um, in general, we should just do kind of an overview of what circadian rhythms are and sleep cycles are and even get into dreams a little bit. So do you want to talk about that? Sure. There are two main processes that regulate our sleep-wake cycle. The first one is the homeostatic process, which basically means the longer you are awake, the more likelihood you will want to sleep. So there's adenosine that builds up in the brain. And if you pull an all-nighter, your adenosine levels are going to be really, really high. And so there's a lot of pressure for sleep. But we also have circadian rhythms that also regulate our sleep-wake cycle. And circadian rhythm is means about a day. So 24-hour rhythms that are in different cells throughout our body. But we do have a master clock, which controls when we feel sleepy and when we feel alert throughout the day. And when we're sleeping, we cycle through four sleep stages. So there is non-REM sleep, so non-rapid eye movement sleep, as well as rapid eye movement sleep or REM sleep. Non-REM is 
composed of stages one, two, and three, three being our deepest stage of sleep. And then REM is when we're in that very dreaming-like state. Although we can dream in any any of the stages of sleep, it's more common in REM when you wake up, you know, remember that dream, more of that movie type, vivid kind of dream. That's when you're in REM. And we cycle through non-REM and REM throughout the night, probably seven to eight times. And they're roughly in about 90-minute cycles. And we get into the deeper stages of sleep more at the beginning of the night, so the first half of the night, and then we're into much of the REM at the end of the night. Yeah, I heard something, and I don't know if this is the right terminology, but someone told me, I was taking a a course in Ayurveda just because I was curious about it, and they said that like before midnight is when your brain does most of its cleansing like of itself while you're sleeping and yeah i was wondering if that was true no that's a i mean i think it depends on your circadian rhythm how well you sleep so our circadian rhythm is also linked with our melatonin levels so melatonin is that, that sleepiness hormone when the sun sets Um, we start to have melatonin be released. And those who are more of a night owl are going to have a later release of melatonin versus those who are more of an early bird are going to have more of an earlier release of melatonin. So you want to sleep in align with your biology if you can. But I, I don't think there's any evidence showing that if you sleep before midnight, you're going to have a better quality sleep. It just depends on your individual chronotype or your individual biology. And can you change that? Because like a lot of us try and force ourselves into a certain bedtime and a certain wake time. So is that something that can be shifted, like what our tendency is as a, as a human? Yes, there is actually an interesting study in insomnia where they found that almost like 25% of this group with insomnia actually ha- were a delayed type. So they're more of an evening type. And what that goes to show is it's harder to sleep when you're not in line with your biology, but you can shift that with light. So I didn't mention that light is the most potent regulator of our circadian rhythm. And so if you're more prone to be an evening type, you would want to get light early in the morning to help bring your rhythm earlier and then block light closer to that bedtime. Because when you get light at night within two to three hours of your bedtime, it's gonna end up delaying your circadian rhythm. If you're more of an early bird, you do the opposite. So you try and get light at night and then block light in the morning. And can that be any type of light? Like even just like turning a light bulb on or does it have to be a certain kind? I mean, in in pretty in serious instances where you have seasonal affective disorder, we would wanna use a light therapy box and potentially in those who are evening types who are having a lot of sleep disturbance, we would want to use a light therapy box. But trying to get outside if it's light out uh, is huge. And then even turning the lights up in your house can be helpful. Cool. So I, I'm still a little bit confused about REM and non-REM sleep because um, mm-hmm. personally, I think it might just be when I wake up, but I'm a pretty vivid dreamer. I dream every night and I remember in detail a lot of my dreams. So does that mean that I'm spending more time in REM cycle or does that mean I just wake up in that that particular part of the sleep cycle? It could be that you have more REM than other people. A lot of people say, I don't dream. That doesn't mean that you're not having REM. Everyone has REM throughout the night, even people with severe sleep apnea. But for you, yeah, you may be getting a little bit more REM than normal. And also, you have to wake up in REM in order to remember your dream. So also for those who are healthy sleepers, not waking up in REM, you're more likely not to remember your dream. So it could just be that you're waking up during REM and are able to remember your dream and you potentially have more REM than other people. Interesting. And here's kind of a random question. So I was playing around with one of those apps where like you set your phone on your bed and it kind of measures, I think it's measuring like the movement of the bed and it it kind of seemed like BS to me. So like, what's up with that? I completely agree. Those apps and there's actually sleep calculators out there that will tell you when you should be waking up because then you'll wake up in REM. It's total BS. Don't believe it. 
you would actually need EEG electrodes, so measuring the brainwave of your activity to actually accurately capture when you're in REM or not. And then these sleep calculators, what they do is they say, okay, this is what you put in, you input the time that you need to wake up, and then you work backwards in 90-minute increments because that's a typical sleep cycle. And then it's telling you you should go to bed at, you know, 10.30 and, or let's say midnight instead of 11 p.m. But our sleep cycles, they vary so much and they're not exactly in 90-minute increments. And it your sleep cycle will vary depending on how much exercise you got that day. So you may have a longer um, non-REM period. So they're really not to be trusted. Okay, that's good to know. So like we're talking about sleep, what time you go to bed. Like you always hear, oh, you need to get between seven and nine hours of sleep per night. And some people seem to just do fine on very little sleep. And personally, I cannot, if I get less than eight hours of sleep, I really feel it. And so like how how do we know how much sleep we actually need? Mm -hmm. You definitely want to aim for that seven to nine, as you mentioned. So if someone's not getting that minimum seven hours, many people say, oh, I can get by on less sleep. I can get by on six hours or less. But in reality, you know, less than 1% of the population are true short sleepers where they don't suffer from they don't suffer performance decrements from that short amount of sleep. So in general, the majority, 99%, need between seven and nine. Good signs that you're getting the amount that you need would be you're not changing your sleep schedule too much on the weekend. So you're not sleeping in two hours, you know, and that type of thing. Um, you're not needing a bunch of caffeine to, to stay awake. And then feeling refreshed within, I would say, 45 minutes, because we do have a little bit of sleep inertia sometimes when we wake up, are all good signs that you're getting a good amount of sleep. And can you actually bank sleep? Because I've done some 24-hour racing and not a lot of it because I like sleeping. But people <laughs> say, well, make sure you get lots of sleep leading into the race. So does that actually work if you know that you're going through a period, like maybe you have to get up early for a flight like two nights away and you know you're going to get five hours of sleep? Yes, that's absolutely great advice. There is a little bit of controversy in the sleep field as to whether you, or not you can bank sleep. There's a recent book out by Matthew Walker, and he's kind of more on the advocate that you can't bank sleep. But I would argue the data shows, so there's been a handful of studies showing that those people that get more sleep leading into a sleep deprivation period perform better so, I mean, there's a little bit of, I guess, maybe technicality in the way you word banking sleep or not, and maybe that's the difference in opinion. But absolutely, for our athletes, we recommend um, banking sleep leading into travel and leading into an important competition because you're not going to maybe get as good sleep as you normally would. So having that extra sleep in the bank is going to help your performance. And in terms of banking it, like, do you... Because you're used to sleeping, say, an athlete sleeping eight to nine hours per night, and now they want to bank sleep. So should they, like, take melatonin and go to bed earlier? Or, like, how, how do you actually make yourself sleep more? I know it's hard. It's hard because of that circadian rhythm, especially if you're waking up at a consistent time across the week. It's really hard to be able to sleep in. So potentially going to bed early is probably the easiest way. And in order to do that, you would want that buildup of adenosine, as I mentioned in the brain. So you would want to potentially avoid caffeine if you can, or maybe have a smaller amount than you normally do. And that will help get you sleepier earlier so that you can fall asleep quickly. Melatonin, I mean, if it works for you, then I say go for it. Maybe you take only a small dose, like 0.5 to 1 milligrams, two to three hours before bedtime. But a lot of times it doesn't work in, I don't know, 60% of the population. So sometimes it's not quite as useful. Okay, I'm laughing to myself because I have melatonin. It's like the sublingual kind, but it's like five milligrams. So if I'm traveling overseas or I'm really having trouble falling asleep, I'll just like pop that in and it, it always works. But that's like a huge dosage compared to what you just mentioned. 
I know. I mean, so melatonin is useful, has been shown to be useful for as a chronobiotic. So what that means is it helps shift your circadian rhythms earlier. Now, as a hypnotic, so trying to help you fall asleep, it's not as efficacious. So if it works for you, if the five milligrams could be working as a hypnotic for you, as long as you're not waking up feeling groggy because of that, you know, I would say maybe reduce it in half and see if it still gives you the same good effects. Cool. Yeah, I want to get into more of the the hypnotic type sleep drugs a little bit later in the show. But while we're on the topic of banking sleep, can you catch up on sleep? Because that's like on the other side of things, like say Mm -hmm. you've gone a week and now you're like, okay, I got to get extra sleep to make up for not sleeping as much a few days ago. Does that work? Absolutely. You can recover from sleep deprivation. In my graduate work, I worked with subjects staying up for 36 hours multiple times across a two-week period, and we would see the change in their sleep EEG or the electrical activity of their brain. And so we would see them getting deeper sleep to recover from that sleep deprivation. So definitely trying to to do it on the other end to help you recover from sleep deprivation. Like if you're doing a 24-hour race, you want to definitely give yourself a lot more time to recover from that. Um, multiple days because it's it's going to take, um, in our studies, we found it took even longer than just one day of 12 hours in bed to recover from, you know, a 24-hour sleep deprivation period. So definitely giving yourself a lot of time and even maybe potentially taking a nap after as part of the recovery process is a good thing. Yeah, that's something people can use if they're traveling overseas to like Europe or somewhere where you end up having to pretty much stay awake or just have very short bouts of sleep on the plane. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, give yourself enough time to recover. Don't plan on scheduling any meetings, you know, early on. Just try and put those to the afternoon and give yourself that big sleep opportunity. Okay, so you mentioned taking naps. So is napping something that's good to regularly practice or does that mess up your circadian rhythm? Napping, um, we would recommend around a 20-minute nap because then you're not getting into the deeper stages of sleep where you wake up feeling completely like crap and groggy. So in general, we recommend that 20-minute nap. But maybe once to twice a week, take more of that 90-minute complete sleep cycle type of nap where you don't really set an alarm and you just let yourself wake up naturally. We absolutely recommend that for our athletes and even just professionals looking to be more productive. Napping has shown to boost your alertness, boost your mood, you know, improve your productivity. So uh, napping is a huge strategy and I think a lot of athletes don't take advantage of it. So with napping, like some people can, like my husband can easily take a nap, but myself, I have a really hard time falling asleep in the middle of the day, even if I'm exhausted. So does that mean that napping just isn't good for me? Or does that just mean I'm too jacked up and I need to learn how to relax? (laughs) Well, how much caffeine are you having too? That could be a a player as well. Yeah, just in the morning. Oh, okay. So maybe one cup of coffee or something. Yeah. I try, okay, I, I, I try to keep it at one. There's the there's the odd time where I'll have two during high volume training or during mm-hmm. like jet lag. Yeah. No, um, it sounds like the caffeine probably isn't playing a role in this, but I would say trying to do relaxing activities prior to the nap. So writing a to-do list is good. You want to offload thoughts from your mind because a lot of times people have so much to do during the day that it's really hard for them to nap. So writing a to-do list is a good thing. Potentially doing relaxation breathing techniques. So the four, seven, eight breathing where you breathe in for four seconds, hold your breath for seven, and then breathe out for eight. And you repeat that four times helps activate that parasympathetic nervous system and potentially reading a book as well, reading just a paper book, staying off the electronics because the light can be alerting. So reading a paper book can help you relax and help you get to sleep. 
And then for that shorter nap, you want to set your alarm probably about 10 minutes longer than you want to the dura- for the duration of the nap. So if you want to sleep for 20 minutes, set your alarm for 30. And then if you find that you're having a hard time falling asleep within that amount of time, just reset your alarm for a longer period. Even as little as five to 10 minute nap can really boost that alertness. So don't get into the habit of like, oh, I don't have enough time. Well, if you have, you know, 20, 30 minutes, you should have enough time to get that nap in. Yeah. And then the tasks that you're trying to achieve later, they might take a lot longer if you didn't take a nap. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah. Yeah. You're more productive despite the time for the nap. And are those techniques people can use as well? Like some people have a really hard time falling asleep at night. Like are those the same techniques that you should use at night? Absolutely. Yes. Those techniques that I mentioned, um, you could also potentially do a worry journal. So for those who are more anxious, you could have a journal, put a line down the middle of the sheet, and then on the left side, write out your worries. And then on the right side, how you can solve those problems. This is more like at least an hour before bedtime. And then close that journal and put it away and it can help you sleep better. And what is it about writing down our worries or our to-do list that actually helps us relax? Like, why is that? I think it's mainly, again, having to do with the offloading the thoughts. So you're, you have all these thoughts going on in your head and you put it on paper, you close the journal and you put it away and it just helps get rid of some of those worries. Okay, so you mentioned light, and I've thought about this a lot because I I read a lot about like high performance habits, and one of them is, of course, don't be on your phone before bedtime. And I can't tell you how many times I'm like scrolling through Instagram, like laying in bed, and I know a lot of other people do that as well, or like people are watching TV right before bed, and that's that light that's going to mess up your circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. So what about these programs? Like there's one I have on my computer called Flux, and it's it slowly like phases out the light. I think it phases out the blue light. Mm -hmm. Um, Can people do that? Or is it better just to have no screen at all? Yes. I mean, we're most, our circadian rhythm, our master clock in the brain is most sensitive to that blue light coming from those electronic devices more than any other type of light or wavelength of light. So yes, the electronics can really mess with your sleep. It can delay your circadian rhythm. It can wake you up in the middle of the night. So having the flux technology at a minimum is is really great to have. And if you have more, if you have an iOS device, you want to have your phone on night shift mode. Um, there is one research study looking at the night shift mode on the Apple phones and, or actually it was a tablet. So it was a bit more, a bigger device with probably more light coming from it. And they found that still having the night shift mode on, there was still a little bit of reduction in melatonin, but it was, you know, it was, I don't know, 7% reduction, which we don't know the clinical significance of that. But at a minimum, having the flux technology on and reducing the brightness of your screen will, and having it on the warmest setting will help mitigate the effects on melatonin. Okay, that's good to know. So I also wanted to ask you about, like you mentioned that there's sleep inertia whenever you first wake mm-hmm. up and you still feel tired. What about if you're still getting like nine hours of sleep every day and you wake up and you just still feel tired all day long? Mm -hmm. Well, you have to look at the consistency of your sleep schedule as well. So consistency helps regulate when we should be awake and when we should be asleep. And so it helps our body with the melatonin on and offset. So you have to look at the consistency. So if someone's, you know, during the week, they have more of a restricted sleep schedule where they have to get up at 6 a.m. versus on the weekends, they're maybe sleeping in a little bit longer, you know, eight or nine. Um, You might be waking up feeling groggy because of the inconsistency in your sleep schedule. So trying to get that more consistent is important. The other reason someone who may not be feeling refreshed after nine hours of sleep, there could be a potentially an underlying sleep disorder. So you really have to look at, are you satisfied with the quality of your sleep, which is a question we ask in our research that has is a really good predictor of how well someone is sleeping. 
And then do you snore at night? You know, that could be a sign of a sleeping disorder. Are you falling asleep or is it taking you longer than 30 minutes to fall asleep? That also could be a sign of insomnia. Are you waking up a, a lot during the middle of the night, you know, more than a half hour are, are kind of signs that there may be an underlying sleep issue going on. Is it pretty normal for people to wake up in the middle of the night? Like, are you supposed to sleep through the night without waking up once? Oh, no, no. It's very normal for people to um, wake up during the middle of the night. It's just if that awakening is happening for more than 30 minutes or if, let's say, you always wake up two to three times during the night and maybe it's only five minutes, that can be kind of a, a concern. You know, what is causing these awakenings? For athletes, I mean, is it your fueling? Is it your hydration? Can you kind of move those earlier on in the day? But yeah, absolutely. If you wake up one time a night, have to use the bathroom, you know, no big deal. But it's multiple times per night and occurring for more than 30 minutes is when we have an issue. Okay, and I think this is a good chance to segue to your research. So you specifically study sleep and recovery of athletes, in, mm -hmm. on, and it's with the Canadian national team, right? Yes, yes. Cool. So do you want to tell us about the research you've been working on? Sure. Um, we developed the athlete sleep screening questionnaire, and we clinically validated it. So we compared what the questionnaire was saying to what a sleep specialist was saying, and the questionnaires used in athletes, the current sleep um, screening questionnaires used in athletes haven't really been validated in athletes. So we really wanted to change that with our tool. And so we validated it in, in 200 Canadian national team athletes. And we found good results with what the questionnaire was saying versus the sleep specialist. And the questionnaire, it categorizes people in, or athletes into none, mild, moderate, and severe sleep problems. So it categorizes athletes into none, mild, moderate, severe. And then what we did was compare that to the sleep specialist and also gave athletes recommendations on ways to improve their sleep and found really good results with, um, you know, with education and giving them recommendations for those who are more of the moderate to severe groups. And we found that they improved their sleep even eight months later after the recommendation. So we feel like it has uh, long lasting effects. And the questionnaire is available online. Maybe we could put a link in the show notes. Perfect. But people can use it and use it in their clients, use it in, you know, if you're an athlete yourself, definitely use that to see if you have a potential sleep problem. And it's, it's not designed to diagnose athletes with sleep problems, but it's more designed to alert us when an athlete has a problem. So if you're in that moderate to severe category, you need to get help from further from a sleep specialist. So in terms of the athlete population compared to, I guess, I don't know if, if non-athlete is the right word, the non-athlete population, how does the questionnaire differ and how do you diagnose a clinical sleep problem in an athlete in a different way over like a quote regular person who's not an athlete? Well, the questionnaire, it's, it's kind of funny because there are only a few questions actually related to athletes specifically. One of them is due to um, travel. So do you have sleep disturbance during travel? And do you have performance issues during travel? All of the rest of the questionnaires, I think anyone could use it. Uh, so even if you're a weekend warrior, you know, I think it would be useful for you. Uh, related to your second point, um, we find in the research that athletes have, they seem to have more sleep disturbance than the general population. And there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, travel, number one, so jet lag issues, trying to balance work, school, training, those family, those type of things, potentially hyperarousal and light and temperature increases from the exercise itself are all potential issues and also substances as well. So caffeine is a big one that a lot of athletes use, um, which we can talk about. I have pretty strong feelings about that, but also, you know, alcohol can be an issue and certain types of athletes, sleeping pills, different types of substances. Some athletes are more likely to use than the general population 
are all reasons why they could, um, why they have more sleep disturbance than the general population. But again, the research is using tools that are not validated in athletes. And so you kind of have to question, are these results valid? And so I think that's where our questionnaire kind of changes things because it's been validated in athletes. And we find about 25% of the groups that we studied had a moderate to severe sleep problem. And that is actually pretty in line with the general population. So there's a bit mixed results when you're trying to compare those two samples. And I did a hormonal test, just I went to a naturopath and for fun, I just wanted to get a baseline on my body. And one of the things that he really looked into was cortisol. So there was salivary samples throughout the day of how your cortisol rises and falls. And in terms of the word adrenal fatigue, I know is a a kind of a controversial word, Mm. Um, but also I've heard like at night, if you get all wound up at night, it's because your cortisol levels are up. And in athletes, I've also heard that there's cortisol differences compared to the non-athlete population. So can you, can you talk about cortisol? Yes, cortisol. So cortisol falls when we go to sleep and then it rises before we wake up. So if you're not getting a sufficient amount of sleep, you could potentially be waking up with a higher cortisol level. I'm not super familiar with the um, adrenal fatigue or any of that type of research, but certainly cortisol is related probably to the hyperarousal before bedtime too. So having techniques, relaxation techniques to help you, you know, wind down before bedtime is really important. And is it bad for people to exercise? Like my husband got home from work last night and then he got on the bike at like 6.30 and went and did some intervals. Does that negatively affect your sleep? It's really mixed results in that area. It depends. So like if he's able to fall asleep easily at night, then I'd say continue that. Generally, we see you don't want to exercise within three hours of bedtime. So that's kind of a general rule. But for those who are more evening types, you know, training in the evening is a good thing because it's in line with your circadian rhythm. And I don't want to like put a rule out there for everyone that you shouldn't be exercising in the evening. It it depends on your chronotype or your preference for eveningness or morningness, and then just your general ability to fall asleep at night. Okay. So I want to talk about jet lag because you just mentioned it. And also we just talked about exercise. So sometimes like I live on the, the West coast and if I go to the East coast to do a race, which is a three hour time change, a mm-hmm. lot of times the races start at like six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock mm-hmm. in the morning, which is a three hour shift, which I'm normally sleeping at that time. So mm-hmm. for people who are going across time zones, that's like a really small example, but say you're going to Europe or like I'm going to Poland in a couple of weeks, like that's a major time change. So what should people do? Like, can you start planning ahead at home by shifting your sleep schedule? Can we talk about how to mitigate the effects of jet lag as much as possible? Sure. Yes. As I mentioned earlier with the light, so light is our most potent regulator of our circadian rhythm. So around three days before the trip, you want to strategically place your light in the direction that you're going. So what that means is if I'm traveling east, I am going to get light early in the morning. I'm going to start, I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to block light at night and I'm going to try to go to bed early. So you want to shift your schedule earlier and you want to get your light earlier and block your light at night. If I'm traveling west, you want to do the opposite. So you want to go to bed later, wake up later, and then get light at night and block light in the morning to help shift you. And even for your particular training competitions that start that early, I mean, you really want to design your training schedule around those competitions. So if that's something that's occurring over and over and over again, you want to almost permanently shift to more of that early bird type of schedule if you can. Hmm. And when you start shifting that, like, do you shift it one hour at a time or should you just like all of a sudden shift it by a bunch of hours at once? Usually we say about an hour, um, hour a day, you want to shift it. And any more than three days typically doesn't work as well because you have all of those just current cues 
from your environment, your current light cues. You know, you can't, you couldn't switch like 10 hours based on your current environment because of the current light dark cycle. It's just not possible. So starting about three days before the trip and then shifting by about an hour. So let's say I'm departing on Wednesday. So on, let's see, Sunday and I'm traveling east, I would want to go to bed earlier by about an hour than normal and wake up earlier about an hour than normal. And then come Monday and even an hour earlier and wake up an hour earlier so that, you know, by the time you're on the flight, you're at least potentially adjusted by about three hours because we can typically only adjust about an hour a day. Now, I will say, though, with traveling west, there has been some recent research showing that a big shift in your sleep time. So like if I normally go to bed at 11 p.m., and now I go to bed at 2 a.m. and can be helpful at shifting your rhythms later. If you're traveling west, you may be able to, to do that more in like two-hour chunks and also adding caffeine about three hours before your bedtime can also induce more of a delay than if you didn't have the caffeine, as long as you're not overly sensitive. Okay. And like, what if someone is going to have like an eight or a nine hour time change? Should they, and you, you mentioned the three day rule, should you do like two hours per day or should you try and actually start shifting it earlier? If you're traveling West, I think you could potentially do two hours a day. If you're traveling East, probably more of that one hour and then starting three days before the trip. The reason it's easier traveling west is because our circadian rhythms are a little bit longer than 24 hours. So 70% of the population have circadian rhythms over 24 hours or longer than 24 hours. So it's easier to delay your sleep naturally versus go to bed early. Yeah. So basically the best you can do if you are traveling east is shift your clock by three hours. Yeah. I mean, there is a bit of individual variability. So if you're more of that early bird, you may have an easier time. You may have a greater shift than if you're a night owl because of the length of your circadian rhythm. And like, what if you can't fall asleep? Like now you're trying to go to bed like three hours earlier than normal and you can't sleep. Is that better to, to just try and shift that and not sleep as much than to just say, screw it, I'm just gonna sleep normal? Yeah, that's a great question. All of this advice is based on that it's not impacting your duration or quality. Okay. okay. So, you know, actually one of our biggest pieces of advice is to try and get just solid sleep leading into that travel. And even if you don't shift anything, if you can bank a little bit of sleep into that and you're capitalizing on getting a little bit more, but you're not really shifting your schedule, you could potentially do better than someone who's really trying to shift it, but they're not falling asleep. Or let's say they're traveling west and they're supposed to sleep in till, you know, 11 a.m., but they have an early flight at 5 a.m. You know, I don't want you going to bed at 3 in the morning when you have a flight at 5 a.m. So you really have to um, think of the advice in terms of your current schedule, your current flight schedule, and really even just trying to get good sleep leading into it without even doing any of the shifting would be useful. Okay, awesome, that's good advice. So once you get there, like you're going to de your destination, what are some good sleep hygienic things you can do to help you get on schedule? Uh, I didn't mention the flight. So once you get on the flight, you wanna set your watch to the destination time zone. Um, that's a good piece of advice. You want to definitely hydrate, you know, wash your hands, those type of things to prevent illness. Sleep on the destination time zone if you can. Maybe take a nap if that's not at a normal time that you would be sleeping. Um, those are good things to do on the flight. And then once you get to the destination, you want to try and sleep on the destination time zone. And that may even require hypnotic medication or, you know, in your case, you say melatonin works just for those first maybe one to two nights to get good sleep or, you know, be able to sleep on the destination time zone is really important. You want to limit your naps 
to about 90 minutes, you know, so if you are getting a bit of that sleep debt accruing, you know, definitely take a 90 minute nap, but you don't want to take too long of a nap because then it could impact your ability to fall asleep at night. So those are good pieces of advice. And then once you get more adjusted to the time zone, seeking light and getting light in the morning to help your alertness and to help set your circadian rhythm is important. And I have a question about kind of metabolic processes, and I'm not sure if this is in your scope of research or expertise, but something that I've noticed about me, and I'm, I'm saying this because I think other people may have experienced this, is I actually don't really have trouble getting on a sleep schedule anywhere I go, but it kind of seems like my body isn't working metabolically. Like, I'll get up and I'll do the race, but my heart rate won't go up. Like I slept eight hours, but my heart rate won't go up it's stuck low. And also it appears that my body won't absorb any calories during a race. So like I'll go to Europe to race and then I'll feel terrible the whole race, even though I went early, like a week early and I'm on a sleep schedule. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. It's a big problem. So I'm trying to figure that out. I mean, I would say adjust your eating schedule. I didn't mention this, but you could adjust your eating schedule pre-trip as well. And you should. So if you're getting up earlier, you know, adjust your breakfast earlier as well by an hour, adjust your lunch by an hour, adjust your dinner by an hour. Those will all help cue the different clocks in your liver and your stomach because we have clocks there as well to help with with that mismatch but we see a lot of times that gastrointestinal distress and GI symptoms are are a big part of jet lag and so trying to shift your meals along with that schedule will be pretty useful cool I'll have to try that so you mentioned that you feel pretty strongly about caffeine um, a lot of athletes, we, we love coffee and caffeine and all this, all this stuff. So can you tell us what, how you feel about caffeine and how much we should be getting and when we should be using it? Athletes use caffeine a lot. Okay. So if it's, especially for like an evening competition, you know, let's say they have a match or a game at, at 7 PM, they may even take caffeine at halftime. And the research shows that it completely destroys your sleep that night. So it may, it may, and I say may have a benefit on performance, but you have to think about the cost to recovery. Um, even, I mean, personally myself, I'm a decaf drinker. I switched to decaf when I was in graduate school. I loved coffee. I had to have coffee and caffeine. But now that I'm drinking decaf coffee, I mean, I still like the taste and the ritual and that kind of thing. I feel way more alert in the morning. And there was a study a little while ago in the late 90s showing that even a 200 milligrams of caffeine at 7 a.m. can still impact your sleep at night. So I would say limit your caffeine to before noon if you can. If you have a competition and you know that it helps you, then use it strategically, but you have to look at how long is this competition? Is it just one day? Or do I have multiple races in a row where I need to be alert and have refreshing sleep, you know? There's some work by Nancy Guest who did, I don't know if you've seen this, but it's it was a cycling time trial and they had participants, it was competitive athletes, uh, use caffeine and it was, I think, in the afternoon that they, that they had three maybe milligrams per kilogram or four milligrams per kilogram. And they found that your response to caffeine and the effect on your performance depended on whether or not you were a slow or a fast metabolizer. So those who were slow metabolizers actually performed worse on the time trial than those who were the fast metabolizers. So really knowing how you metabolize caffeine will be important for you to figure out whether or not it's useful for you. So how can someone know how they metabolize caffeine? I think subjectively, just are you sensitive to caffeine, then you're more likely to be a slow metabolizer. But potentially getting a nutrigenomics test where they look and see how you metabolize caffeine could be important at knowing how it will affect you. 
Okay. And yeah, like it seems like with caffeine, people respond different. Like the same person can respond differently on different days. So some days like you feel really sensitive to caffeine and you like have a coffee mm-hmm. and you're all like jittery and, mm-hmm. and wound up. And then other days you'll have a coffee and then be able to just like fall asleep right afterwards. Yeah, I'm not sure why that is. I, I don't have an answer for you. The other thing I didn't mention was potentially cycling off caffeine every three days or so. So maybe you find caffeine to be useful. There was a study that showed that after the third day, the caffeine loses its effectiveness and it actually makes you have poor mood. So potentially using caffeine for a few days, but then on day three or day four, not using it and then using it again can also be helpful as well. Is it bad for someone to just go cold turkey off caffeine if they're used to having it every single day? I think so. I was working with a national team curler and when I was first starting out and I said, you know, you should really limit your caffeine intake to any, you know, try not to have caffeine after noon. But for that curler, you know, she was used to having that with competition and she didn't feel like it affected her sleep. And so for her, you know, me giving that just blanket advice wasn't useful. And so for her, I think if she would have gone off a of caffeine, like she would have been in, in hardcore withdrawal. So I would say to try and titrate off of it. And for me, I didn't just quit cold turkey. I would have maybe a green tea in the morning and then, or maybe a black tea, and then I would move on to a green tea and then move on to decaf coffee. And then if I, and it took about two weeks for me to to actually feel more alert. So I was in the, the first two weeks of going, you know, using that decaf coffee, I was so tired. And so it does take a while for it to get out of your system. Yeah, it's super interesting how caffeine can mask like your actual fatigue symptoms too. Because mm-hmm. like, as athletes, we have to pay attention to our body and be like, okay, am I actually fatigued or am I just using caffeine? Like, how do I know when I need to rest? And if you're always jacking yourself up with caffeine, mm-hmm. it's hard to really tell what your body's telling you. Yes, I noticed that myself. I mean, now that I'm drinking the decaf, if I get not enough sleep, I will definitely feel way more tired during the afternoon. And it's really a cue to me like, hey, you know, get more sleep in order to uh, not have that happen. So we've talked about caffeine. Let's talk about alcohol. Mm, yes. So like people are uh, like, oh, I'll drink a glass of wine to help fall asleep. But then you read how like <laughs> that's really bad because it actually disturbs your sleep. Yes, it does. It helps you fall asleep more quickly. But as it's being metabolized, it wakes you up more often. And you actually lose out on some of that REM sleep. Uh, they find that you get less REM sleep when you have alcohol. So trying to limit it, maybe one drink for women at dinner, two drinks for men, you know, at dinner is is okay. It's not going to impact your sleep that much, but having it right before bed is really going to destroy your sleep quality. Okay. And like, what about people on the airplane, <laughs> especially like flying overseas and the alcohol is free. So people are like, yeah, <laughs> like let's get wasted. So like, how does that like mess up jet lag and in, in your flight and your sleep? Well, I mean, it's going to impact your recovery. So if I drink a bunch of alcohol and then go to sleep, my sleep is going to be more disturbed. I'm going to wake up more often. I'm going to have less REM. And so it's going to take you even longer to feel better once you get at the destination. My brother actually flies overseas a lot. And he said his um, ritual is to have a beer with dinner and then he'll take a long nap or a long sleep. And so, you know, that's not that big of a deal. Um, And especially for him, he finds, I think, just the ritual of it helps him sleep better and relax. But it's more of those people trying to, you know, drink three or four drinks and then go to sleep. It's going to impact your recovery. Okay, that's good to keep in mind. The last one on this topic is hypnotic drugs. And I read Ariana Huffington's book, The Sleep Revolution. Mm -hmm. And there are some really crazy stories in there about people taking like Ambien and and these drugs like they, they do things that they're not even aware that they're doing. Um, They like kind of wake up. So 
I've never taken a sleeping pill before because I'm afraid of of that type of thing mm, happening. So, mm-hmm. like, what are your thoughts on sleeping pills? Well, in athletes, we don't really, number one, we don't even know the prevalence in athletes, like how many athletes are taking the sleeping drugs or sleeping pills. We don't know how it impacts performance. So in elderly, they are more prone to falling. So they have more balance issues if they're sleeping or if they're taking sleeping pills, you know, so, so is it, could it impact the balance or coordination of an athlete? We don't really know. And yes, we do see instances where people will take an Ambien and then get in their car and drive and get fast food and come back and not even, you know, seeing like fast food bags uh, all over their floor and not even realizing that they got in their car. So it can be really dangerous. And so we would recommend sleeping pills on a more strategic basis. I mean, we had an athlete who could not sleep on a plane and he was well into his career and he always had this issue and it would take him three days, three, four days at the destination to catch up on his sleep and he would miss training sessions because he needed that sleep to recover. So in that type of instance, you know, we recommended the sleeping pill and it really helped that person. So I don't think it's bad in all situations as, you know, as long as you're not dependent on it, it can be useful in certain situations, but yes, it's that long-term chronic use. And we do find that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is actually more effective than sleeping pills. Okay. Yeah. And like, yeah, a lot of the things that they teach you, I think would be really helpful over sleeping Mm -hmm. pills because sleeping pill is just like a bandaid for Mm -hmm. for your brain that you can't seem to calm down. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. hundred percent. And you mentioned something that I thought was interesting that I wanted to bring up. You said he missed training sessions because he needed to sleep. And Mm -hmm. this is something that I think about a lot because again, like I'm fortunate where I can train at whatever time I want, but my husband, you know, he's trying to go to all the races that I'm going to, and he has to go to work during the day. Mm. So there's times where he won't get to bed early enough. And then he's like, well, I'll just get up early and ride. But then there's the question of, well, should you actually sleep? Like if you're only getting six hours of sleep every single night and you're trying to wake up to train to squeeze in your training, is it worse for you to get up early and train or should you actually train less and sleep more? Like what's actually better? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. You know, you have to train to be good at your sport. So no question. That's important. But is that impacting your recovery? I mean, in order to get those adaptations, you have to have good quality, quality, quantity, and timing of sleep. So in someone who's continually getting six hours of sleep night in, night out, I mean, can you add in a day where maybe you don't train as hard, but you sleep a little bit longer? Can you take a nap? So can your husband take a nap even on his lunch break? Can he take a 20 minute nap? So finding kind of creative ideas to help mitigate that, we don't really know the answer. I mean, we know that more sleep is equated with better performance, but we don't really know the fine-tuned recipe as to how much training you should do versus how much sleep. That's really a question, I think, for the future. Okay, and now I want to get to like the bonus round, and this is something I'm really excited to ask you about (laughs) because... You have three kids, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. like, a lot of my friends are, are having babies right now. And like my greatest fear with having a baby is not sleeping because I am very protective of my mm, sleep. Like that, yes. is, that is a non-negotiable for me. But mm-hmm. when you have a baby or like kids, well, guess what? Now you're on their schedule. So how does that affect you? Because like, for example, if you're female, you have to wake up every couple hours at night to breastfeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you're not getting sleep. So what, what would you say to people about that? So I have three kids, five and under. Wow. Um, my youngest is, he's about to turn one. So it is hard. It is challenging. I will admit that, especially with my youngest, when I was on mat leave, I would take a nap every day. Like the older kids, they were, sometimes they would nap, sometimes they wouldn't, but I'd have them doing quiet time in their room. And then while the baby was napping, I would take at least a 20-minute nap. So napping is really key in that situation. 
I actually tracked my sleep with uh, my youngest for the first five months, and I found that it wasn't until month four that I saw a, a significant change in my sleep. So the first three and a half months were were horrible, <laughs> but then once month four hit, I started to just get more sleep at night. I mean, there's sleep training techniques out there for for newborns. Um, you really have to find something that works for you. For me, I had my son really try and get him to soothe himself to sleep. So I wouldn't feed him to sleep. I wouldn't rock him to sleep. I wouldn't, you know, pat his back to sleep. I really just let him figure it out on his own how to sleep and soothe himself to sleep. And I wasn't a fan of the cry it out, so it wasn't anything like that, but I at least gave him a few minutes to try and, you know, figure that out on on his own. And that really helped to better nighttime sleep as well because he would wake up in the middle of the night and then be able to kind of get himself back to sleep. So there are a number of techniques out there that you can use if you're if you have a new baby uh, or newborn. But really just trying to nap when you can, maybe potentially go like you, the mom, you know, the mother who's breastfeeding, going to bed early while maybe the partner takes a shift at night so that you can get at least a solid chunk. You know, if you're pumping and use a bottle and that type of thing, that could work. As far as older kids, I mean, even last night, my three-year-old woke up in the middle of the night. So it's, you're not immune, even if they get older. So just trying to use some of those techniques to help you get back to sleep quickly is really important. And then just, yeah, trying to make up with it, make up for it with naps and maybe sleeping a little bit more in, sleeping in a little bit more on the weekends are my pieces of advice. But yeah, I definitely don't have the, all the answers for that one. Yeah, because like you're going to be in a state of sleep deprivation pretty much guaranteed because you're not, you're just not going to be able to sleep like you used to. So mm-hmm. how do you function during the day? Like if you're not using caffeine as a crutch, like how impaired are you actually if you're getting repeatedly like not much sleep every single night for months on end? I mean, you are your performance is going to go down. I mean, there's no question you're going to be less alert during the day. And I will say that I didn't go off of caffeine until my son was (laughs) probably at least six months old. (laughs) And it wasn't related to that. I just, I, I don't know what I would have done if he was a newborn and I wasn't on caffeine. So you may potentially use caffeine on those really, really poor nights where you didn't get good sleep at all um, and use it as a fatigue management tool. Yeah. And then like little kids seem to get up really early in the morning. And then I've noticed that parents will will put the kid to bed and then they'll stay up late because they want to just have some quiet time. Mm, the kids yes. So they trade their sleep, but they still have to get up with the kid at like 530 or whatever time the kid's getting up. I got one of those alarm clocks. The one I I use for my kids, it's a stoplight. So you can program it to come on. So you turn the red light on at night and then, and red light doesn't impact our circadian rhythm. So that was kind of one of my bonuses for choosing this one. And then you set it for a certain time. So ours is set for 7 a.m. And they can't get out of their bed until the green light comes on at 7 a.m. So that uh, that alarm clock was was really useful for me. And we use it, and my son's five and, and my daughter's three, and they share a room. So we're still using it, and it seems to help the majority of the time. They wait for that green light, and then they come out of bed. So, so really uh, look into that if you have some of those toddler and preschool-aged kids you know, you almost have to kind of shift to more of that earlier schedule if you really want to prioritize your sleep, your health, and your performance. So you may not be able to get in, you know, a full three-hour movie before bedtime if your child is getting up at 6 a.m. and you know you're going to have to be up at that time. So yeah, really kind of trying to balance that. Maybe a few days a week staying up later, but then trying to be consistent the majority of the week will be will be good. 
Awesome. Yeah, I feel like we could do an entire podcast on like how to manage sleep with kids and having kids <laughs> on a schedule. And then there'd be like all this controversy because there's no correct way. <laughs> I know. I know there is a lot of controversy um, over how newborns should sleep. And yeah, we don't want to go there. Yeah, we'll, we'll just keep this as it is. Well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think there's a lot of really great information um, that people can use and start applying directly in their lives immediately. Um, if people want to find more information about you or about your research, where's the best place for them to do that? I'm pretty active on Twitter, so they can find me at Sleep for Sport. I'm also on Instagram as well. So yeah, you can look for me in those those places. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Dr. Amy, I was going to say <laughs> that PhD, man, that is hard earned. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> it was really nice talking to you and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Dr. Bender is awesome. That was gem packed with so much information and I hope that it was helpful for you guys. I'd love to hear what your favorite tips are from the show. And also, if you've been enjoying the show, I would really appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts. You just go on Apple Podcasts, you look on the right, there's a little ratings and review section if you want to hit five stars. That really helps with the searchability of the show. In the US, we're at 95 five-star ratings, and I'd love to see it get up to 100 plus. That really helps out a lot. So thanks, guys. It only takes a couple of seconds. I am heading to Poland next week for a six-day mountain bike stage race called the Sudeti Challenge. And I've never been to Poland. I don't know what to expect. And to be quite honest, my training hasn't been what I would have liked it to have been. So I'm working on the mindset of just going and doing my best and just being happy with what I have and knowing that that's the best I can do. And that's how what happens sometimes. Sometimes we have events and there's lots of different things that get in the way of our training, but we just have to do the best we can going into it and focus on why we're doing it. So that that's where I'm at right now, thinking about this race. And there's been other races in the past where things have gotten in the way because I do, I allow things to get in the way. Like I have the luxury to be able to put training as number one, but I love all the other business things that I'm doing. I love my sock brand. I love Plant Power Tribe. I love the podcast. I love all my writing projects. I love my sponsors. So it's hard sometimes to prioritize training. And sometimes whenever you spend all this mental energy doing all these other things, it actually has a compounding physical effect on the body. And there's a lot of research about that out there that is really coming out. And I've been really enjoying reading that and learning about that. In fact, that is really played out in Alex Hutchinson's book, Endure, and in Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus's books, Peak Performance, both of whom have been podcast guests on this show. So follow the adventure in Poland. We're also going to go to the Czech Republic for a couple of days. I've never been to either country. I'll be posting on my Instagram account, showing pictures and fun. And it's just going to be such a cool experience. And I'm really excited to go there and just ride my bike for six days and have a blast. And my husband is also going and racing. So that is also just such a great thing. It's really hard to travel without him. And it just isn't as enjoyable whenever he's not there. So I'm really glad that he's going. That's it for this week's show. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. 